My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Sarah St. John and Omar Chu. Modern immigration regimes, including Canada's, don't just admit certain people to the country and bar others, usually based on standards that are useful to the elites within the country in question. They also play a major role in organizing the lives of those who are admitted, including determining what complement of barriers and risks they face, and what resources they have access to. In so doing, they wind together with more diffuse ways in which benefit and harm are distributed unequally along axes of race, class, gender, sexuality, and so on, and manage to have impacts that are both incredibly oppressive and really complicated. Most people who have not had to deal with the Canadian immigration system, or who at least have not faced the features that tend to be targeted at people who are working class and or from the global south, tend to have no idea that these impacts even exist, let alone how they work. Sarah St. John and Omar Chu are organizers with Sanctuary Health, a Vancouver-based migrant justice group. The group came together several years ago after the Conservative government of Stephen Harper made major cuts to the Interim Federal Health Program, or IFHP, a decades-old mechanism through which refugees and refugee claimants were able to access some kinds of healthcare resources while in Canada. These cuts left many residents of Canada newly vulnerable to suffering, illness, and death. Though Sanctuary Health initially mobilized to respond to the new needs created by these cuts, they soon recognized that these were part of a much broader spectrum of barriers and gaps faced by people with a wide range of different migration statuses in Canada, from undocumented people to refugees to temporary foreign workers to various sorts of permanent residents. So over the years, not only have they organized many drop-in health clinics for migrants and done work to push healthcare organizations to reduce barriers to their services, but they've also broadened their scope to challenge many other ways in which migrants to Canada are currently denied the resources that they need to live. This includes doing the slow, unglamorous education work to make sure that more and more individuals, community groups, and institutions develop some consciousness of how the Canadian immigration regime actually works and shapes people's lives, and it also includes ongoing work to get Vancouver and other municipalities and institutions in British Columbia to adopt what are called Sanctuary City or Solidarity City policies, so that people can access services and resources regardless of their migration status without fear of being detained or deported. St. John and Chu speak with me about the complexities and oppressiveness of the Canadian immigration regime, about the work of Sanctuary Health, and about the fight for refugee health care and sanctuary cities. We spoke by Skype to phone from Vancouver. My name is Omar Chu. I'm a member of both Sanctuary Health in Vancouver and No One is Illegal, Coast Salish Territories. My name is Sarah St. John and I'm a member of Sanctuary Health. I'm also from Vancouver. Sanctuary Health is a grassroots community group 
comprised of community health workers, community organizers, and people from diverse backgrounds and experiences. We work with immigrant and refugee communities, believing that all migrants should be able to access services, regardless of their immigration status. And we've been pushing for a sanctuary city, both in the city of Vancouver and in other Vancouver municipalities. And we work with many different immigrant and refugee groups. We give referrals and try to connect people with services that they can access. For me, one of the first things that got me interested in issues around immigration was learning about a terrible car accident here in the Lower Mainland. I think it was 2005 or 2006, where two farm workers died in a car crash because they had a practice of just filling vans without seatbelts, just on benches in the back of a van with workers and taking them around from farm to farm, which is really unsafe. And so it was huge in the news, and it opened my eyes to the fact that there's a lot happening right around me that I didn't know about. And so I started to learn about issues related to farm work, which is mostly done by immigrant populations, and particularly the Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program. Workers come for three to six months, and they work on farms, and their work permit is tied to their employer and their employer provides housing. They don't get overtime pay, and often the health and safety conditions of work are quite terrible, and workers don't necessarily know their rights. And so when I learned about the fact that most farm workers don't have protection from pesticides, they don't have adequate access to washroom facilities, they don't have clean water, even though in the summertime they could be working on the fields for 14 hours a day, I was pretty shocked, and so I think that made me more interested in the issues, too, around status, because if these workers had the right to change employers or had the right to stay in Canada without a job, they might have been able to seek out better conditions, and so it really opened my eyes to the ways that status can really change a person's life, and I got involved with different groups organizing around those issues and most recently have been most involved with Sanctuary Health. My route into this type of work comes through a lot of privilege. I grew up completely buying into the discourses of multiculturalism in Canada and believing in the benevolence of the Canadian state overall towards people like me. And that's the way I saw things through my perspective growing up. And I think a big entry point for me was when I was in university in England and ended up getting involved in the student refugee groups over there. And then I think while I was in the UK, I was sort of getting bits and pieces from Canada about some of the policies that were being passed at the time that were horrifying. And when I got back, I sort of realized that these are not necessarily new policies, but that there's a history of discriminatory policies, as well as also the causes of migration for which Canada and its allies bear a lot of responsibility. Tell me about the founding of Sanctuary Health. It came out of a community event. When the interim federal health cuts were first announced, there was a lot of events happening in the community, and one in particular, the community groups stayed afterwards and did some brainstorming around what could we do around this issue? How could we ensure that refugees still had access to health care? Were there clinics that were accessible? Were there doctors willing to do this kind of work? Was their community willing to organize around more advocacy and more lobbying to pressure to stop these cuts? 
And there was quite a bit of interest. So it was just basically started out of an email list that got passed around at that event, which again took place when the interim federal health cuts were just put in place. I mean, there was already people doing some of this work. I think it was more coordinating. At first, it was just like, let's keep talking about what we can do. And it led into a few meetings. I can't recall what the first actions were. At the time, from what I understand, the group started setting up clinics for people, dropping clinics, not regular, for people who didn't have access to healthcare. And I think that was a big point when a lot of the people accessing those clinics weren't necessarily refugees or refugee claimants, but people who were falling through bigger gaps in the system. And as Sanctuary Health became an access point for people, it became not just about healthcare, but other services as well, and connecting people to whether it's trying to enforce employment rights of workers not being paid but fearing to complain for fear of deportation to registering students in schools, even if the students themselves are Canadian citizens, if their parents have problems with status, they have a huge amount of trouble accessing schools because the school demands to know, in many cases, the parents' immigration status. So just a wide variety of barriers and a wide variety of different people who are trying to access these services. Sanctuary Health has evolved very quickly. It evolved beyond the refugee cuts when gaps that many different migrants face in accessing services became clear. Tell me more about the interim federal health program and about the impacts of the cuts to it. The interim federal health program was a program that provided access to refugees and refugee claimants to health care. Yeah, refugee claimants and anybody who, even if their refugee claim was not accepted, was deemed non-deportable because their risk assessment showed that there was too much risk to send them back to their home country. They could traditionally get health care. And the impact has been pretty devastating, not only in what the program was supposed to do, but also you have many people working in hospitals who don't necessarily understand the paths of migration that people take, and so denying health care to people who actually should have it. There are many different barriers to health care, and the cuts to the IFH program has put access to health care for many out of reach. I mean, in the worst cases, I'm sure there's many individuals who passed away. I know of one individual in particular who did pass away. He was in Canada for many years. He had two kids here who were Canadian citizens. He was undocumented and had tried to become legal unsuccessfully, but they weren't able to deport him because it was deemed that there was too much risk of sending him back to his home country. So after a long time, after he was diagnosed with cancer, he eventually was able to get short coverage for his cancer treatments. And when the program was cut, he lost access to those cancer treatments and shortly passed away. So that's one example. I mean, there are many examples. Just think of any time that you need to go to the doctor. Refugee claimants lost the ability to do that. So you have mothers going without prenatal care. You have, yeah, I mean, any kind of health care. They lost access. So, yeah, you have people who are not going into healthcare until it's an absolute emergency because they can't afford to go in any sooner. And so it pushes health issues to the limit. 
and shift the care down the road. And then they get hit with these massive bills afterwards. The cuts were ruled cruel and inhumane by the federal court. And in response to that ruling, the conservatives reinstated health care for children under the age of 19 and some health care, but not all, to pregnant women who would have previously got full health care under this program. We hope that this program will be reinstated, but realize that this program, when it was in effect, only helped a portion of immigrants and refugees in Canada. And what else did Sanctuary Health do to respond to the needs created by those cuts beyond hosting your own clinics? Well, we have community health care clinics out here, for example, that provide access to everyone to health care. So that could be immigrants with precarious status, but it could also be just individuals facing a lot of poverty that may not have their ID or may not know their medical insurance number. But we were finding that while these clinics should be open to everyone, often there are barriers at the point of entry in terms of people asking for specific information. And so there is a lot of fear from people, especially if English is not their first language, that they actually don't have the right to care or that they're worried about their personal information. And so we've met with the health authority to strengthen the relationships we have so that when we refer people, that point of entry is managed better and that through this sort of direct advocacy, people can get in to get appointments and aren't necessarily asked those questions that provide a barrier at the point of entry. There are a couple community health workers who are involved in Sanctuary Health, and it is a major part of the work that Sanctuary Health does is reaching out to health workers, both individually and also to community clinics, to hospitals, and trying to meet with managers and frontline workers about creating more access in those spaces. So both trying to fill the needs right now and finding individuals who are willing to fill the needs right now and also trying to make sure that the institutions are also becoming easier to access as well. A lot of questions that we get from people who are in these institutions are, what do you mean there's people who can't access our services? We're open to everyone. And then you have to sort of walk them through the different paths of migration that people take. You have to walk them through some of the way that asking about immigration status, the first question someone walks in the door, is going to push away a lot of people. And walking through the different stages of how people are getting cut off and then pushing them to address it. Once you've done some of that education work with the organizations, is there generally a willingness to make the kinds of changes that are necessary to reduce barriers? It's complicated. Everyone has limited access to resources. There are only certain services that we can get people access to healthcare. We aren't able to just advocate for people, for example, at a hospital to get access to care without fees. That's pretty much impossible, so there's still a lot of ways that people fall through the cracks and resources we aren't able to get people simply through advocacy. Yeah, like Sarah said, it's super complicated, and there's definitely been mixed results. Certainly in some institutions, there is a trap of getting into this deserving versus non-deserving discourse and will only serve certain people and not other people, and so it can be quite a battle to say everyone deserves access to health care. And like Sarah said, that's partly due to limited resources. One thing that we've seen is actually in hospitals, it's often the finance department that is calling CBSA on people. 
and CBSA is the Canada Border Services Agency. And so it's an ongoing and complicated challenge. <laughs> Tell me more about how the deserving-non-deserving distinction gets made in these kinds of contexts. Does it tend to be drawn on the basis of some aspect of people's status, or is it based in other ways that the institutions are judging people? There's issues of status, only giving access to people with certain statuses or certain lack of statuses. There is issues of cultural difference, I think. One thing that for some of the people that we work with, when they go to the hospital, they want to do so in a dignified manner. And part of the way that they try to do that is they dress up in their nicest clothes and jewelry and so on that healthcare professionals might assume that, oh, look at this, how nicely they're dressed. They can afford to pay for the services. They don't need access when many other people who are dressing like that don't have the money and are trying their best to portray an image that will give them access to care and that actually has resulted in the opposite. Yeah, there's many different judgments that are being made when people walk in the door rather than looking at simply the health needs. Tell me about the work that Sanctuary Health has done in politically challenging the cuts to refugee health care. I guess we've done a lot of work in our community around really building awareness of the different pathways to migration and demonstrating to people that it's not as simple as applying for legal status, that there are many, many people who fall through the cracks and are unable to become permanent here, even if they came with the intention to do so. And so we've mostly focused on a local level, meeting with different organizations in the community, from labor groups to social service providers to school districts, and tried to really explain the different pathways of migration to people and how limiting and unjust the immigration system has become. And we hope that very soon the city of Vancouver will pass a sanctuary city policy, which, of course, is partially a huge political statement that says that in Vancouver, we think everyone should have access to the services that they need. And we recognize that the way that the immigration system is currently running is inadequate and is unjust and lets a lot of people fall through the cracks. Sanctuary Health was also involved in the Transportation by Deportation campaign. That was a case of the lobbying that Sanctuary Health was a part of, pushing a lot of different organizations to stop working with CBSA and to stop enforcing immigration law because it's not in the municipal jurisdiction or provincial jurisdiction. We tell people, you're not border guards, you're nurses. You're not border guards, you're transit police. You're not border guards, you're librarians, and so on, right? These are unjust immigration laws, and they shouldn't be enforced, period. One of the things that we've done is we've held several community forums first to develop sanctuary city principles as they would apply in Vancouver. And so those principles are granting services based on need and not by migration status and creating access without fear of deportation or death, which essentially is not collaborating with CBSA not charging exorbitant fees based on immigration status and ensuring that information is confidential and not shared with CBSA or CIC. 
and then further to that, developing a recommendation for a sanctuary city policy at the city of Vancouver, the need for embracing those two principles as well as training for staff as well as a communications plan so people know that the city of Vancouver is making a stand and pushing for that. We also hold a peer support group for people with precarious status, which is very important for us to make sure that we are grounded in what people with precarious immigration status are asking for and need, and also to connect them with each other and to create that sort of mutual support. And also we bring in people from organizations that we trust to access services to share what's available and so on. That's sort of a variety of the different work that we do at Sanctuary Health. And where's that process at of getting Vancouver to declare itself a sanctuary city? The city of Vancouver, one of the parties, Vision Vancouver, said that they would implement a sanctuary city as part of their political platform. So we've continued to put pressure on them to implement it and have presented them with a draft policy that we would like them to implement. And we hope that we will be able to, within the next year, say that Vancouver is a sanctuary city. So there is political will. And right now, it's just about working with the community to continue to put pressure on the city to make sure that it is a strong policy. Yeah, because it's very easy for a sanctuary city policy to be a policy that are words only, and so our key is that not only the policy passed, but it is a strong policy that will actually increase access to service and will be a model for other institutions, other cities to follow. What form of pressure are you putting on the city? At the moment, we've presented those proposals to councillors and city staff, and we are looking at, in the future, like really short-term future is in the next couple of weeks, really started to build groups who can set up meetings with counselors and put a lot of pressure, a lot of advocacy into ensuring that counselors have the right questions to ask, know what is necessary for a sanctuary city policy to be a truly sanctuary city policy. And I think part of the key is understanding that the municipal government has only a certain amount of jurisdiction and that means that we also want to ensure that other organizations are passing their own sanctuary city policies and really this isn't necessarily about the city but it's more about bringing groups together and creating a community that is passionate about these issues and so through this process of lobbying we're also building the community is almost the more important aspect to it. And I think we already have demonstrated that there is a pretty strong network of groups in Vancouver that care about these issues and that have endorsed our principles. So when we meet with them, we're able to go to them with these endorsements, which I think sends a powerful message that it's not just sanctuary health, but there's a lot of people who agree that this needs to change and that we don't want social services being border checkpoints in our community. So you mentioned earlier that one of the kinds of work that you've done is not just in the health sector, but meeting with other community groups, meeting with institutions like schools, and doing education work around migration issues. What are some of the most persistent or maybe most harmful misunderstandings that you repeatedly run into when you're doing that education work with people who don't necessarily come from a basis of knowing much about migration? I think we already touched on a few of them, but basically people assume that there's a higher level of access than there is. 
often people that aren't on the front lines may think there's more access than there is or may not understand how the way that they've structured their organization presents a barrier. And I think the other thing is people don't understand just how challenging the immigration process here in Canada is and the tough situation that it puts individuals in. So, for example, if your spouse is sponsoring you, oftentimes you don't have the right to work in Canada. So you're expected to be here and not work and be able to support yourself. And so I think there's sometimes an easier level of understanding for people who have no papers at all. But it's these people who are on spouse or sponsorships or tourist visas or work permits that people are like, well, why don't you have access? Why don't you have the right insurance? Why can't you afford to do it if you already have legal status? And so there is a huge lack of understanding of just how hard those processes are and how much they limit your access to care. You've already touched on this a little bit, but give me a bit of a fuller picture of the big things that are coming up in Sanctuary Health's work. We want to be pushing for Sanctuary City, not just in Vancouver, but across the lower mainland. We want to be pushing for Sanctuary Schools policies among the different school districts across BC, continuing to open up access to hospitals, to healthcare specialists, and so on. Yeah, I think it's a lot of just continuing the work that we're doing. I think there is a growing awareness of this issue, especially here in Vancouver. There was a lot of attention paid to just how hard it is to become a refugee in Canada when that very upsetting photo of the young child on the beach who had passed away in his journey to a safer life was published in the newspaper. His family actually lives in the lower mainland. His aunt, who had been trying hard and had worked with her MP to really demonstrate that this particular family needed to come here and they needed to come here now, and they were unsuccessful. And as a result, both of the young boys of her brother's family passed away trying to travel from Syria to Greece, I think. And so I think for us, that was really an opening and It's also, I think, raised the profile of the issue. So we find that more and more we aren't requesting to do presentations, but people are requesting that we do presentations. And so I think there are a lot of groups we haven't yet talked to and we'll continue doing that work to talk to service providers, to unions, to community groups to continue to educate about these issues and educate them on how they can ensure that they are not contributing to this issue and that They are protecting the confidentiality of people's information and ensuring that they understand what they do have to and don't have to tell CBSA if they have inquiries. You have been listening to my interview with Sarah St. John and Omar Chu of Sanctuary Health. To learn more about their work, go to sanctuaryhealth.blogspot.com. That's sanctuaryhealth.blogspot.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.